Welcome to episode 35 of the podcast. I am your host, as usual, Mr. Mike Giant. Uh, for this episode, I'd like to talk about the Eightfold Path. It's a system of personal investigation devised by the historical Buddha, also known as Siddhartha Gautama. He created the Eightfold Path to explain his way to end the suffering he felt was caused by our misidentification with our thinking minds. The Buddha broke the Noble Eightfold Path down like this. Uh, part one is right view. Part two, right intention. Part three, right speech. Part four, right action. Part five, right livelihood. Part six, right effort. Part seven, right mindfulness. And part eight, right concentration. Although this sequence isn't particularly chronological, uh, in my experience, right view helped the development of right intention, which in turn helped the development of right speech, and so on down the list. Part one is right view. Uh, gaining a proper understanding of right view is the first step in realizing liberation through the Eightfold Path. Uh, right view is sometimes translated as right perspective, uh, right vision, or right understanding. Uh, it revealed to me a way of seeing life as it truly is in the present moment rather than experiencing life as conceptualized within the confines of my thinking mind. The practice of right view helps me understand that I create my own suffering, or happiness for that matter. Uh, I learn that I must be personally responsible for maintaining peace and tranquility of mind uh, because nobody else can do it for me. Uh, and eventually, once I had really established right view, I was able to free myself uh, from my fear of inevitable sickness, aging, even death itself. Uh, in day-to-day -day life, the practice of right view helps me eradicate the moment-to-moment -moment distractions of my thinking mind. And ultimately, it helps me stay in tune with the base nature of human existence or ultimate reality, if you will. The practice of right view has also revealed to me the law of karma, such that every one of my actions in body, speech, and mind uh, will have a likewise reaction depending on my intention. Uh, to put it simply, if you wish to have a life free of suffering, you must act with that intention in everything you do. Uh, if it's your intention to cause harm to those around you, uh, it should be no surprise that someone else intends harm to you. Um, violence feeds violence. It's only nonviolence that brings peace. Uh, 
I've certainly found this to be the case in my own experience. Uh, the, the practice of right view also revealed to me the nature of impermanence uh, such that all things are subject to change. Like um, nothing is absolute or static. Uh, there's no birth, uh, no death, only change. Uh, fear of death exists in all of us and it holds us back. Uh, we weren't designed to last forever. Uh, we all have to make our peace with death before we can really live. Uh, take advantage of your time right here, right now, before it's too late is kind of the idea. Uh, as an example of how to understand right view, consider a leaf on a tree. Uh, you may look at a particular leaf and allow your mind to create all kinds of distinctions about it. Uh, you could compare its color uh, to the other leaves. Uh, you could compare its size and shape to the other leaves. Uh, you could think about how old the leaf is or consider how long until it falls from its branch. I mean, you could give the leaf a personality and create its life story, you know. Uh, you could consider all kinds of what-ifs, like um, what if a gust of wind comes along and breaks the leaf free of the branch? Uh, what if the tree catches fire? Uh, what if the leaf has magic powers, you know? But in the end, this is all thinking. Uh, it's just thoughts. It's created uh, by your mind. Uh, in practicing right view, you calm your thinking mind and open yourself to what the leaf has to teach you. Uh, don't think about the leaf. Just observe it deeply. Now, in my personal experience, the deeper truths of the universe <laughs> were revealed to me once I learned how to relax and observe everything around me with the eyes of right view. Part two is right intention. Right intention is sometimes translated as right thought or right aspiration. I think of right intention as a proactive commitment to overall self-improvement. In practice, right view helps me to distinguish between the wholesome and the unwholesome aspects of my moment-to-moment -moment experience. Then, by practicing right intention, I focus my energy on developing and manifesting the wholesome aspects of that moment-to-moment -moment experience and let go of the unwholesome aspects. Uh, this seems simple enough, but quite often in our daily lives we are unwittingly developing unwholesome situations through our own ignorance and lack of perspective. The Buddha taught that a person should be judged by their intentions not the outcome of their intentions. I think this is a key point in Buddhist philosophy. It means that if you go into a situation 
with right intention, you can't be judged by the outcome. However, if you act out of ignorance, uh, your right intention isn't worth shit. Uh, the Buddha described three particular types of right intentions. Uh, the first is renunciation. In practice, uh, this means that I have the intention to give up the things that cause harm or suffering in my life. Uh, for myself, that means giving up stuff like television, cigarettes, hard drugs, uh, horror movies, uh, Facebook, uh, one-night stands, etc. Uh, second is the intention of goodwill. In practice, this means that I always have the intention to act with kindness, uh, especially when faced with anger or aversion. Uh, it's important to note that aggression in this sense doesn't always mean that it's coming from an outside source. Uh, aggression most often begins in our own thinking minds. Uh, it's within that space uh, that I think your intention of goodwill is most helpful. Uh, third is the intention of harmlessness, uh, such that you don't think or act cruelly, uh, violently, or uh, aggressively. Uh, in practice, this means that I always have the intention to bring love and peace and uh, compassion to any given situation. And again, it's important that we maintain this intention of harmlessness at the level of thinking. Uh, it's very important to remember that feeding uh, cruel or violent thoughts only creates more harm to you and those around you. Uh, we must use uh, compassion, patience, and understanding. Uh, to help us let go of unwholesome thoughts. Part three is right speech. Right speech is the third aspect of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. It's also the first of three aspects that concern themselves with ethical conduct. Simply put, practicing right speech means that we only say things that we know to be factual and true, as well as beneficial and agreeable to others. Uh, we should never lie nor exaggerate. Uh, we should not say one thing to one person and something different to another. Um, you know, we should never use insulting or abusive words towards each other. I'm sure all this sounds pretty simple enough, but in real life, it's not always so easy to practice right speech. I, I think we all know that. Uh, for myself, the real test of right speech comes when I'm angry or frustrated. It's in those moments that I need to understand, you know, my own suffering and deal with it head on. Uh, when I don't deal with it, I end up exploding and I let it out on those around me, sometimes saying some really stupid shit, really hurtful stuff. Um, and that just creates more anger and frustration. And 
that's something we certainly don't need more of in this crazy world. So I just try to be conscious of right speech, no matter where I am. Part four of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path is right action. It's the second of three aspects that concern themselves with ethical conduct. Uh, by practicing right action, we're training ourselves to be morally upright. Uh, and we're also being careful not to cause harm to others or ourselves through our actions. Uh, by practicing right action, we begin to see how unwholesome actions lead to unwholesome states of mind, uh, which perpetuate our day-to-day -day suffering. To begin with, the practice of right action means that we abstain from harming or killing any living being intentionally or otherwise. Uh, this includes abstaining from self-harm and ultimately suicide. Uh, also, as you might expect, eating a vegan diet is a classic practice of right action. Uh, Buddhist monks are generally vegan, but not always. I, I've met many Tibetan monks who ate meat regularly. Uh, in the end, you must decide uh, for yourself what's right for you in any of these uh, practice suggestions. Uh, practicing right action is also important in sexual matters. Uh, to be rather specific, the Kunda Kamara Putta Sutra uh, states that one should not get involved sexually with people, quote, who are protected by their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, their relatives, or their dhamma, those with husbands, those who entail punishments, or even those crowned with flowers by another man, unquote. Uh, personally, I take that to mean that I don't pursue women that are underage, obviously, or still living with their parents and or extended family. Uh, I try not to pursue women that are married or already in committed monogamous relationships. I also try not to pursue women that my homies have expressed romantic interest in. I just don't go there. Uh... But again, you have to choose for yourself how to practice right action in your own sex life. Uh, the practice of right action also means that we don't steal. Uh, we don't commit fraud. Uh, and just don't be dishonest, you know. Uh, every day I still fight the urge to steal something, but... <laughs> choose instead to practice right action. Uh, and I choose to not get over on people, you know, even when I kind of feel like they deserve it. <laughs> and I try not to lie to people, um, even dumb little lies. I just try to be better than that. And that's really what uh, right action is all about. Part five of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, is right livelihood. Uh, 
It's the third of three aspects that concern themselves with ethical conduct. Uh, by practicing right livelihood, we're training ourselves to be careful not to cause harm to others or ourselves uh, through our occupation. Uh, by practicing right livelihood, we begin to see how unwholesome occupations uh, can be creating much of our day-to-day -day suffering and the suffering of the people and animals around us. Uh, the historical Buddha described four basic areas of harmful occupation. The first is the business of weapons. Uh, as such, it should be obvious that the accumulation of arms, uh, membership in the military, or employment with an arms manufacturer would be deemed unwise by the Buddha. The second area of harmful occupation is business in human flesh, uh, specifically the slave trade and prostitution. I think we can all agree that slavery is wrong and uh, should be abolished worldwide. Uh, but personally, I disagree that prostitution is outright harmful. Uh, I have friends that are prostitutes, uh, surrogates, and adult film performers, and I don't feel that what they do is outright harmful um, to themselves or others. Um, the third area of harmful occupation includes any business in the flesh of animals, uh, which includes raising animals for slaughter and butchery. Again, if you're really going to take the Eightfold Path seriously, uh, go vegan, even if it's not forever. Uh, I think it's an important practice, um, but um, if you're like me and need to have some animal protein in your diet, just try to be conscious about where your meat is coming from and uh, eat it sparingly. Uh, do what you can. The fourth area of harmful occupation deals with the manufacture and distribution of intoxicants addictive drugs and poisons. Uh, to me, that means, you know, we, we don't make and or distribute things that fuck people up. Um, simple enough. <laughs> uh, but I've always wondered if the historical Buddha considered marijuana and psychedelics as intoxicants or if they were intentionally not mentioned in his list. Uh, it's very easy to find evidence that cannabis and psychedelics were used when the historical Buddha was alive and have been used as aids in meditation and prayer practices by various religions all over the world, uh, before and since. Uh, I think the important thing to be conscious of is whether you're using psychedelics and marijuana to tune in or tune out. Uh, I think it's better to use these substances as tools uh, to engage life in uh, new ways and not escape from life in the way, say, uh, a heroin or a fentanyl addict might. As with any of this stuff, um, you need to find the truth in the Eightfold Path for yourself by living it and breathing it and acting on it. Uh, how I practice right livelihood may be different from how you practice it, 
And that's okay. Uh, we're all unique individuals. Uh, that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, but remember to be a player, not a fan. Uh, follow your own path. Part six of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path is right effort. It's the first of three aspects that concern themselves with mental discipline, concentration, and meditation. It's important to recognize that the same mental energies that go into self-discipline, honesty, and kindness uh, can just as easily create desire, envy, and aggression. Uh, the practice of right effort should be our guide when working with our mental energies in meditation and life in general. Without the practice of right effort, uh, our mental energies can be misguided and create more harm than good. The practice of right effort is really about focusing our mental energies to continually develop wholesome states of being. The Pali Canon describes these four very basic ways to practice right effort. First, simply prevent unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. Meaning, if you find yourself angry and wanting to lash out, instead, come back to the present moment using your meditation practice and prevent an unnecessary emotional outburst. Uh, this, the second way to practice right effort is to let go of the unwholesome states that have already arisen. Meaning, if you couldn't stop from lashing out, go ahead and calm down, come back to the present moment, and try to let it go. Uh, the third way is to cultivate wholesome states that have not yet arisen. Meaning, be proactive about developing a positive mental attitude, PMA. You know, when, when you're down, get up. Uh, the fourth way is by maintaining the wholesome states that have arisen. Meaning, when all is well, maintain that shit. <laughs> Don't be distracted. Just focus and relax. Part 7 of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path is Right Mindfulness. It's the second of three aspects that concern themselves with mental discipline, concentration, and meditation. By practicing right mindfulness, we're training ourselves to perfect cognition or really to see things as they are. Uh, normally when we see something, our thinking minds make distinctions and interpretations of the object we were, were looking at. Uh, you know, like the, the leaf on the tree. Uh, we may notice uh, the size, shape, or color of some object. And, you know, 
it might be something we want to keep or something we'd like to destroy. But by thinking about the object, we're conceptualizing it. Uh, we're not actually getting to know the object. Uh, when we're practicing right mindfulness correctly, we're able to observe the process of conceptualization without getting caught up in it. Uh, in other words, we can hear all the thinking going on in our minds, but we can take it or leave it. In this way, we can settle our minds down and in a way let the object itself tell us what it has to say. Uh, this may sound trippy, <laughs> uh, but when you're able to relax your mind in this way, it'll all make sense. Um, I'm going to read you something, a, a quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who I believe was one of the disciples of the historical uh, Buddha uh, in explaining the practice of right mindfulness. Uh, quote, The mind is deliberately kept at the level of bare attention. A detached observation of what is happening within us and around us in the present moment. In the practice of right mindfulness, the mind is trained to remain in the present, open, quiet, and alert, contemplating the present event. All judgments and interpretations have to be suspended, or if they occur, registered and dropped." Unquote. Through my own practice of right mindfulness, I began to see a way the, the way that my mind works in a dream uh, when I'm asleep is the same as how it works when I'm awake. Uh, it's all just thinking. And just as easily as I can wake up from a dream and realize it was just a dream and forget about it, I can practice right mindfulness in the same way when I'm awake and deal with my thinking mind as if it were a dream and let thoughts come and go, cultivating the good thoughts and letting go of the bad thoughts. Uh, personally, this simple realization has been incredibly helpful day to day. Uh, also, as a, a side note to my fellow artists, when I practice right mindfulness while I'm working in the studio, I can work from a place beyond the conceptualizations of my thinking mind. Uh, and it's in this uh, space, this meditative space, that I feel the most focused and in tune with uh, the like raw creative flow um, and when I'm in that flow, I'm able to remain productive and inspired indefinitely. Uh, I really believe that combining my art practice with mindfulness practice uh, was a huge breakthrough, uh, both personally and professionally. Uh, now, as a lifestyle, I 
try to maintain mindfulness during every you know everything I do throughout the day uh, the consistent application of right mindfulness to my daily activities um, it's always yielded like great uh, personal karmic benefit uh, and a, a real feeling of peace and contentment um, if, if I had to recommend only one aspect of the the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. Um, to those of you interested in really liberating yourselves from the kind of general dissatisfaction in your life, uh, I would really encourage you to develop uh, right mindfulness. Uh, it's really that important. Part 8 of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path is right concentration. I have the word samadhi, S-A-M-A-D-H-I, uh, tattooed on my left arm. It's the Pali Sanskrit word for right concentration. Uh, it's the also the last of the three aspects of the Eightfold Path that concern themselves with mental discipline, uh, concentration, and meditation. Uh, I learned how to develop right concentration in three main ways. Uh, first, using my body as the object of concentration. Uh, second, using sight as the object of concentration. And third, using sound. Um, so, f focusing my attention on my breath has been the mainstay of my meditative practice since the beginning. I mean, uh, that's basically Vipassana meditation practice, using the, uh, your breath as the, the anchor for your practice, so to speak. Um, my first instruction on sitting meditation included lengthy comment on the importance of the process of breathing to uh, us aspiring meditation students. Uh, if you're alive, you're breathing. It's something you can always come back to. So as my mind becomes distracted by thoughts during meditation practice, I simply return to my breath and try to enjoy the present moment. Uh, when I notice that I'm lost in thought again, I simply return my concentration to my breath. Uh, this is like the process of meditation in basic form. Continually pulling attention away from the thinking mind and returning it to the living body. Uh, in this way, I feel like I've learned how to internalize uh, my practice of right concentration. Uh, in 2003, while staying at a Tibetan Buddhist retreat center in southern France, I began to meditate with my, mo with my eyes open. Uh, up until that point, I had only practiced meditation with my eyes closed. Um, 
So for the first time, instead of focusing my attention on my breath, I focused on what I was seeing. Uh, at first, I tried to focus on something very tiny on the floor, about four feet in front of me. Uh, I would focus my attention on that spot for the entire 45-minute sitting period. Um, immediately, I remember... Uh, experiencing dramatic uh, perceptual shifts, uh, not only in my vision, uh, but my consciousness as well. Um, stuff that I can't really explain, but after a few days practicing like that uh, in the silence of that meditation hall, uh, I decided to take it outside and uh, start meditating with my eyes open outside. Uh, I remember focusing my attention on a, a nearby tree for one sitting period. And then I focused on the horizon uh, the following period. Uh, my vision became hypersensitive. Uh, it was really exciting. Like I'd unlocked some magic. Um, and then I started to kind of reverse focus and tried to see all things as one thing. So instead of like focusing on something in the distance and just focusing on that, I tried to open my vision up so that I could take in everything uh, in my visual field as one thing, almost like I was looking at a painting. Um, in, in that way, uh, I really feel like I began to learn how to visualize uh, my practice of right concentration. Um, in a, another context, um, I think of Dharma as the ideas that we aspiring Buddhas need to understand before we can free ourselves of the suffering caused by identifying with our egos. Uh, the historical Buddha described his Dharma, his you know ideas on, on liberation, as like a raft on a river. Um, We'll start on the shore of, let's say, greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, and then using the, the raft, the Dharma, uh, we can be carried to the, sh the other shore um, where love and compassion and understanding reign. Um, from there... You know, once you're on the other side, you should leave the raft behind and continue on. Uh, an ancient mantra that is about this story basically goes like this Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha. I know that sounds crazy, but <laughs> it just means gone, gone. All the way gone. All the way gone to the other side. Ah, oh, yeah. Or, you know, something to that effect. Um, 
But regardless of the, the meaning, uh, the, the point of mantra practice is to repeat, repeat a phrase like that uh, evenly and consistently. Uh, and you use the sound of your voice as the object of concentration, uh, just like you'd use your breath as the object of concentration during Vipassana practice. All right. So through mantra, you know, this is the, the way that I feel like I learned how to vocalize uh, a practice of right concentration. Um, by articulating the practices of right concentration for myself, I feel like I'm able to integrate the other seven aspects of the Eightfold Path uh, coming full circle, like the famous uh, symbol for Zen Buddhism, uh, the, the little circle that doesn't connect. Uh, now I can see that each aspect of the Eightfold Path uh, works with the others um, to help us understand how to be free of this suffering that's created by our thinking minds. Um, which again, the, the Buddha, that was a, a real main point, you know, that much of the suffering that we feel day to day is uh, simply because we're misidentifying with our egos, um, that we're more than that, um, so much more. But again, it's up to us uh, as individuals to articulate these teachings in our own lives for any of it to work at all. Uh, lasting peace of mind is possible um for sure uh you just got to put your faith in in the practice um and it'll prove itself to you uh just come back to the present moment and generally you'll see that um most things are going just fine thank you <laughs>